Bench Racing Radio. Bench Racing Radio. The podcast with your hosts, Eric Gio and Anthony Leak. How's it going today, Anthony? Well, pretty good, Eric. How about you? Oh, not bad. I uh, just got back from the rink there from our interview and mixed a nice, nice stiff drink. How nice or stiff was the, is the drink? Um, I mean, it's not like a measure of how good or bad the interview went. Oh. It's just, it's just, you know, a good and stiff drink. It's what you, it's what you need sometimes. Well, I got a sneaky peach here. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's no, sneaky a... and peachy. Nice. <laughs> I don't know what that is. So I'm just gonna pretend I do and, and carry on. <laughs> um, uh, did you get into uh, get in any racing on the weekend? Yeah. I watched highlights from NASCAR, and uh, I heard who won the race in F1, and I heard some other dirt track stuff, Um, but otherwise, um, not a whole lot. You know, like I've said before, like I, I, it's hard for me apparently to engage in in racing unless it's racing season. Um, Mm. I, I don't actually. This year's been more odd for me i've usually kept a closer eye on nascar and other racing stuff in the month of march but i think i'm just so tired of the way winter has been that i just been bleh. so <laughs> yeah it's been kind of uh i have not been engaged like i feel like i should be and i wasn't in i racing this winter either so you know the list is kind of oh shit yeah you're gonna lose your jobs man yeah i know right so for a guy who never really raced you were a pretty good at racer right here yeah That's actually yeah if i started really doing it again i know when uh we had done some more pickup racing on asphalt anyway i mean i was no good at the dirt track stuff but when we started doing some of the charlotte stuff and texas stuff yeah like top three top four gaining gaining positions i i felt like i had not something to provide deal. yeah not a big deal but dirt was not my <laughs> thing at all i i tried it it didn't work out very well but on the asphalt it was yeah i i i feel like i'm a somewhat decent driver on that surface nice nice how about you what well, you yeah, uh what josh what'd you watch there was uh there was a lot of good action on the weekend here i mean uh you know with with the big dogs there and uh uh the, the finish at the at nascar at the circuit of the americas that was that was interesting. I I, I support it. I think you know, seeing uh, Chastain, you know, he got moved to uh, to lose the lead, and then he yeah, I would say he fought back a little bit harder than he got hit. But hey, I mean, you know, last lap, a guy steal your lunch like that, right? So, no. So that was uh, that was all fair. Good to see a guy like Chastain win his first race. So that was good. It was nice and, not uh, seeing it pouring rain. Yeah, yeah, that was also solid because last year was a total. Yeah. total rain out right yeah um yeah and then uh and f1 actually i didn't get the chance to watch the f1 race but i, I read all about it and i heard it was a great uh great showdown and uh it's looking like it's gonna be a really good year at the top between red bull and ferrari mercedes is nowhere to be seen and that makes me happy <laughs> so uh and and you know what they'll be there they'll get there that's oh, a yeah. smart team and a bunch of smart guys they'll figure it out their engine didn't get bad they just got to figure out the rest of the car so they'll uh they'll get that sorted i'm sure well, it doesn't matter how yeah, fast seeing... you go. You still got to make it through the corners, right? Well, exactly, right? And, and uh, that's just something that they, God, they got it right every year for so long. They were bound to get it wrong once, you know, so um, that was good. But then uh, Bristol Dirt Nationals got rolling. Yes, it is. And uh, I got to make a shout out to our boy, Brock Gronwald. Got the job done in the Sport Mod class. It's kind of cool they're doing it. So they've got all these, you know, they've got 
street stocks and sport mods. And then this week, uh, and then they had uh, late models there on the weekend. And then uh, this week it's, uh, it's modifieds and I don't know what other classes are running with them. And then I, uh, they're, they're bringing in sprint cars and late models and stuff on the weekends. And it's, uh, they, they got all the, the big classes coming through. So it's, uh, it's going to be a good one, but yeah, Brockstar was, uh, was awesome. You know, the pride of Fergus falls, uh, went down there and he, uh, he won, he won and he was running up front in every feature. He didn't win and, uh, and took the little points championship for the, the three nice. night deal and, uh, and just ran fantastic. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool to see a guy that we've raced with and and had some good times with uh, get to go do that on the big stage. Yeah, it's really cool. It's, you know, it's a chance in a lifetime, really. I've been hearing rumblings that there's a good chance this isn't going to happen again. Um, it was almost... Oh, really? Well, I just, you know, the, the internet, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And yeah, yeah, sure. uh, from people who are really close to it saying that, you know, it was such a big event the first year we were lucky to get the second year and uh you know if it doesn't seem to be as popular the second year then maybe not a third year like who knows right uh, it all comes down to when the show's over but it does sound like the possibility i mean it's a big event to organize and oh man i can't imagine what it costs but <clears throat> you got to think that they're doing a lot smarter this time by because like the first time they did it it was just outlaw late models and sprint cars and that was it and then they they tore it all down and now right. you know they're spreading it out they got way more nights of racing they got you know several different weekends they're bringing like literally thousands of racers through there mm -hmm. and uh, and then they bring nascar through and you know I, I think that it's a lot smarter on the payback front nowadays and i don't know i can yeah. see it sticking around i hope it does but yeah uh, same here but yeah. it yeah it's it's hard to say i mean every year's Another year, it's so big, right? Like the organizational uh, effort required on such a facility like that to not just to make it dirt for coordination, but to to put in all that make you know making sure all the drivers get there and all your sponsors and all the fans and the program as a whole. I mean, it's amazing what they can pull off. But I mean, I'm sure it wears out people too because there are some people who are who put a lot and a lot of effort into it. And even if there's financial reward, that's, that's regardless, you know, money isn't everything um, for motivation. And I think that, you know, some people, they get burnt out and it seems like it's a big event that if, if, uh, if you're not careful, you can get burnt out on. So hopefully not, but um, you know, I, I did hear some rumblings, but hopefully it continues. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And honorable uh, or, or shout out there to, uh, the Manitoba Missile, uh, Ricky Weiss, uh, set quick time both nights of racing. He was super fast. Unfortunately, couldn't quite get it converted over for the features. Uh, did come out of it with a top three the one night, but uh, just a little piece missing on the long run. So hopefully uh, he can work on that here and, and pick up a W before the end of this deal. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's got a long season ahead of him, so it's nice to see early success. And if that continues, that'd be really good. I mean, it's as long as you're in the in that top five, top eight area, then there's always a chance of winning, right? It's when you're really missing the mark that causes, you know, the frustration. Yeah, and the consistency to to get there that's that's better than, you know, winning a couple races a year, but then sometimes not making the show. Right, you know that you want to, that consistency is going to pay you dividends, and if you can just ratchet it up a little bit more, get up in that top three every night, then now you're laughing. But uh, but easier said than done. But uh, I guess with that, we'll roll into uh, into the mailbag segment, and we wanted to to change this one up a little bit. 
you know, I, we kind of felt like it was a little weird with us reading the questions to ourselves. So we want to bring in a, a guest host to uh, to help us get through this mailbag thing and uh, and just kind of, you know, add a little bit more to it. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Max Wozni. How's it going? Living the dream, buddy. How are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. <laughs> me, and, uh, me and Max are... They're looking to get out on the road here with the sprint car this year a little bit and uh, get out and you know get some shows in and uh, figured hey Max is a guy who knows racing he'd be a good uh, good addition so I mean you welcome know, I, aboard I I appreciate it I appreciate um, being put on the spot like that <laughs> but it's... we're setting the bar high buddy <laughs> <laughs> got to make a, a good impression while I can right that's right. All right. Well, guys, I um, I figured we should start things off. You know, it's nice hearing a, a new voice to the channel, uh, so to speak. Uh, I figured I'd give you guys a hand with the the mailbag. I guess we should call that mailbag, mail order, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, mail but... order. Easy. easy. You got to make sure <laughs> yeah. you know what we're talking about here. <laughs> uh, what are we so, ordering? Uh... <laughs> Answers, Eric. Answers. <laughs> That's what we're ordering here. That's right. We're ordering up at a side of truth. Well, hard truth. <laughs> Why don't we roll into the first question here? I'll um, what uh, what would you order when you go up to the concession stand? What would you say your favorite food is? Oh, and who's uh, who's this question from? Uh, Just for context, that would uh, be yours truly. Hmm. You sent one in, and then you got hired onto the podcast. How did that happen? I don't know. I guess luck of the gonna, luck of the draw. We're gonna have to talk about this in our production meetings. Um, That's right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't like. I don't eat too much before my race, and then the problem with running later in the feature is always uh, that you risk not getting to the shack before it closes, which always really sucks. But uh, eh, I don't know. Usually, maybe maybe fries if I eat anything before I race, and then. Uh, and then, yeah, if, I, if I'm lucky to catch a cheeseburger afterwards, then that's uh, that's great. But I do like the places that are really creative with, like, the taco in a bag and uh, and some different stuff. I, I definitely appreciate that. So, yeah. And, Anthony? And for me, um, I eat before uh, on my way to the racetrack on race day in the morning. I do not eat again until it's over. So, uh <laughs> I mean, I do have someone who comes up to me and says, do you want to eat? And I go, yeah, in a few minutes. And then she comes back and says, do you want to eat now? Yeah, yeah just in a few minutes. And then the races are over. Um, <laughs> the only time I would say I probably eat um, on race day as on the two-day show or on any of the Sunday race, although this year we're running so many Sunday shows, I'll be able to actually eat when the food trailer gets there. Um, and it's actually kind of nice to be able to grab something to eat at like three o'clock, but on the Friday night stuff, uh, or the first day of the two day show, it's not even food's not even on just my just mind. Forget about, yeah, it. Just yeah. forget about it. And then when I get home, I'm just like, cause I walked like 10 kilometers in that period of time. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm usually pretty hungry when I'm, when it's all said and done, but I usually get, if I do, it's usually a cheeseburger or French fries, something or poutine, poutine. Um, I know an emo, uh, pierogies was the big thing. So I usually had pierogies there if I ended up nice. eating. No, you can't go wrong with good pierogies. That's right. Yeah. So moving along here, we got, uh, Kevin sent us some pretty good questions. 
Um, so this one's more directed towards you, Anthony, as a track promoter. I mean, Eric, you can weigh in by all means. Um, so he asks, how wet is too wet? Well, I don't know if he's referring to the track condition or how much rainfall in general. Um, for anyone who's raced on a day where it either race, rained three inches the night before or three inches the day of race day, I don't know if there's anything as too wet in terms of racing in Kenora because everything drains relatively quickly. Um, and I think I would also preface everything with it depends on the track on in terms of track conditions, what's too wet. Um, a lot of times you don't really know, uh, what the track is going to do after a rainfall, how rough it's going to be. Like, I mean, for example, the first time that we ran in 2018, it rained, I don't know, an inch and a half over a period of an hour or two. And we spent three hours packing it in and it was relatively smooth because the water never had a chance to soak in. And even though it was a slime on top, eventually we got to go racing until it rained again and it wasn't too bad. But then you could have a time, for example, this past year where we had new clay on the back stretch of the track and it was so dry. We, I barely was able to even pound it in, let alone level it. And because it had no moisture when it was put on the racetrack the whole time, it rained almost an inch that morning before we went racing and it soaked completely into that new clay. Now turns three or uh, entrance of three and four and one was great, but where the new clay was, it was so wet and so soft and then eventually all of it just rutted up and luckily it rained halfway through and we didn't have to deal with uh, everyone rolling over from hitting ruts. So it, there really is no consistent explanation of saying that what this is when it's too wet because you just don't know until you start doing things. However, I would say if you had, you know, proper conditions and everything, um, I mean, if it's rained an hour before race time, nine times out of 10, you're probably not racing. I would say that's when it's too wet. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, it's easier to put, what do they say? It's easier to put water in the track than there is, than it is to take out of the track. So, um, you know, try to balance it as best you can, I guess. Um, yeah, that's the longest way to answer, but I just, it's hard to come up with a, a solid consistency because every time. Oh yeah, it varies so much. Right? Exactly. I mean. Like the one time uh, we, we, I've, we put the truck back in the trailer, we're like, yeah, we're not racing today, forget this. And, uh, and you were walking around the pits going, no, 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 I think we'll be okay. It's not raining too hard. And then finally it stopped and we went out there and we packed it in and it was hammered down in the heat smooth races, but it and was a nice, down. smooth race oh, track. It was beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, Hey, it, it turned out fine. But then, yeah, there's times when we've tried to do that and, and we really, really wish they would not have. So <laughs> yeah, like you can't win. It's, yeah. it's so 50, 50, right. In those yeah. moments, you just try to, all you can really do is over a period of time, take it from experience and, yeah. you know, at a track like Kenora, that's so new we haven't encountered. And I mean, how many tracks have, in 10 years, would you have encountered every type of situation? Well, maybe not, but you would have maybe 90% of those situations. In Kenora, we just, you know, we've only had 30 or 40 races in its career. So we haven't even come close to every circumstance or situation that you get, whether it's humidity or wind or smoke coverage or cloud coverage or thunderstorms, pouring rain, light rain. You know what I mean? So yeah. a, a place like Winnipeg, 
you know, it's different again. You're in an area where the pit area, uh, if it gets any kind of the moisture, pit is more of a factor than the, than track, the racetrack, usually, right? Yeah. So you might not be racing usually. six hours before because it rained at eight o'clock in the morning an inch, and there's no way you're going to be able to get into the pits, let Even alone the, the track race. could be totally exactly, fine. Yeah. exactly. But I yeah, mean, that, those are the most frustrating ones. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's been times where we've had guys line up on the gravel road because the yeah. pits were just too wet. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the track was, you know, hammered down completely perfect. I mean, sure, there's times where maybe we put a little too much water on the track and it becomes single lane. But regardless, you know, it 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 takes practice. It takes experience. And definitely you're not always going to get it. No. And one week, the track condition will be different than the next. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. There is a when is wet too wet. Uh, I don't have an answer. So in seven minutes, we just explained how so we don't closing, have closing, we don't have anything. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. All right. And uh, Eric, this question uh, is going to be for you. Sure. Um, how do new teams and drivers learn the basics uh, with only 25 laps a night? Do you have any suggestions for upcoming teams, upcoming drivers, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really tough thing about it. You know, if you're... So you're playing hockey or you, you want to get better at golf or something. You go out as much as you want, right? You go out on the ODR in the wintertime. You, you practice. You you can do all that. Everybody always assumed growing up on a farm that we had some way to practice. And you don't. You can't recreate a real racetrack unless you have just an ungodly amount of money. Because even if you just drew out a circle in a field, uh, it's nothing like actually going on a racetrack that's watered and packed and banked and all that other stuff. So it is one of the hardest things of getting started is just getting enough seat time and, you know, consistent enough uh, situations to be able to start to, to build on that. So it's tough, but uh, you know, that said, you still just, you, you maximize every opportunity. Uh, you know, you go out there for your hot laps, you, you get somebody to take video so you can watch it back and learn from it. Uh, take good notes on your setups and stuff and know what's working, what's not working um you know start to get that feedback of you know have the driver talking with the crew chief about what you what you're feeling what you want to be changing and you know just uh yeah focus on on the moment and uh and trying to to maximize the just a learning opportunity when you start out it's not usually about trying to win right away it's just about trying to keep it in one piece and trying to learn yeah, and I think and, and a sidebar there too would be keep it in one piece uh, because you don't learn anything when you're on the trailer mm. or you got black flagged or you didn't make the A main. So keeping it in one piece and getting as many laps as you can is uh, is definitely the best way to to keep moving forward. And I think it's important to take advantage of any available practice that might come up. Yeah, I was I was yeah. just about to say that and, uh, and maximize that time. Yeah maximize that time i mean if you're going out there and you want to become a better driver i know it costs money to go and practice but if you're only going to be able to do 25 laps on a race day and there's a three-hour practice available you know if it means you have to do 100 or 200 laps at practice to get better um you know one of the things that i advice that i give to drivers is you know like what eric said is just it's all about the seat time don't worry about how fast you're going to go, or if you have the best of best of equipment, um, it's just, you got to start getting a feel for it. Eventually you're going to get faster, but don't start feeling just because someone else has got the, you know, $20,000 in their race car that you all of a sudden need to spend that 20,000. Like you shouldn't buy junk, but at the same time, you know, just 
make sure you know that where your experience catches up to the car, the car is the car, but yeah. your seat time, your experience has to catch up to the capabilities of the car first. Um, yeah. before you start worrying about whether you should have the nicest, newest, best working stuff out there, you have to get yourself to that point so you can maximize the ability of that race car. That's true. And there's a balance there too. Um, you know, it's easier to learn how to drive, uh, how to drive a, it's easier to drive a fast car slow and learn how to drive it than it is to learn, drive a slow car and try and learn how to go fast. Cause you learn a lot of bad habits. Right. Um, so there's a balance here too. I mean, I don't recommend any rookie goes and buys a brand new roller, um, because it will not be perfect <laughs> very soon, but I don't recommend anybody go out and buy a, a hunk of junk just to get started. Oh, exactly. You're going to have to buy everything again yeah, right away. Exactly. If you, if you like the sport at all, you're going to have to buy it all again. And if you don't like the sport, you're not going to get anything for it when you sell it. So, That's right. That's uh, right. you know, buy, buy something decent, but don't, you know, don't go all out. Yeah. Now, Eric, Eric, I, uh, I do have another question here. Um, a lot of people are asking, do you have a Facebook page? You know, I know you have your Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. People want to know your schedules, where they can uh, where they can watch you race, stuff like that. Do you have anything we can uh, take a peek at? I do, yeah. Uh, I mean, Eric Yo Racing is the, uh, the Facebook page and the Instagram page uh, together. Uh, going to be firing up a YouTube channel as well with some, uh, some in-car camera footage, uh, not looking into too much of the vlogging type of thing, uh, but maybe give you a little bit of a peek behind the scenes at what we're doing. Um, but, uh, you know, going to be, going to be getting that all going there on, uh, on the social medias here. And as we get the car out there and rocking, um, and, and yeah, schedule, <laughs> I've made several revisions in my schedule already. And unfortunately due to fuel prices, they keep getting shorter, but, uh, <laughs> We're still uh, still putting that together, and I'm, I'm looking at around 20 shows in the sprint car, and uh, I think it's like 15 or 17 in the truck. So I'm going to be a pretty busy guy, but uh, definitely uh, going to be a fun year, and, and I will be sharing that with you guys as soon as I feel comfortable enough and committing to it. So, but soon enough. Well, we'll uh, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that, uh, Anthony. I got one more question for you. Um, as somebody, or I guess I should say, Kevin also is asking, how can a class improve their value other than a massive car count? Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure uh, what that means in terms of value. I think that the competitiveness is huge. I mean, I've seen four cars out on a racetrack go four wide for 10 laps. Um, and I think that, that, that's, I think there's lots of value in that versus maybe having four cars and one's lapping the other three. Um, you know, when we, I I mean, I wouldn't say that massive car counts makes value necessarily. Um, I think that, I mean, obviously three or four cars isn't going to give you great racing every single time you go out there, um, compared to like 10, 12 or 15, um, I would say for me, as a promoter, the best value you can get is having two heats of a class for for the race night. So, um, which is generally nine or ten. Ten if it's with soda, but I know with the trucks in the past, if we've had eight, I've done two heats of four, nine, five, and four. 
because that's really where the value comes into play. When you're able to put on three races um, at a minimum for each class, that makes a world of difference. That really adds to the value. Uh, to it. I also think like in particular, you know, knowing that Kevin comes from the super trucks, um, that the trucks themselves, just the way they look, um, can bring in a different value set. You know, every class brings in different value, right? Um, and, and when you bring them in on a special event, there's value there just as a, being a special event, like bringing in the trucks or the modifieds in Kenora as my best example, or super stocks I did in emo years ago and the trucks in emo as well in the past, you know, that in and of itself uh, brings value to the track and to the audience. So um, I think that would be a big piece of it. But then when they do come for a special event, being able to get those two heats and then the single feature, and I'll tell you why, if you just have basically a heat that looks like your feature, everyone has a pretty good idea of who are the top four, three to five cars. But when you split them into two and you mix them up a little bit, especially to a new fan or a casual fan, they're not really going to know who's faster than who. So as a result, it keeps people entertained because they're guessing exactly who the fastest i know i used to do this i'm just like i don't know he looks faster than the guy who won or the girl who won the last heat race you know but it keeps people talking that way and i think that brings in a ton of value that way so you know car counts aren't the the be all and end all but if you can get to those nine ten or eleven and be able to add a little bit of that prediction or that guesswork in your heat qualifiers that adds a ton of value to the program as a whole well i definitely think that's uh that's a good answer um do we got time for uh one more question um yeah you know you know what we're going pretty long here we'll uh, we'll save that one save the rest for next time sure. and uh and welcome uh anyone here please uh, shoot us an email or message us on facebook or twitter or wherever we're at instagram uh send over your uh, your mailbag questions and and get them in and uh and mad max here he'll he'll get them on and read them <laughs> to us so it'll be great but uh, yeah, thanks for joining us here, Max. This is fun. We'll uh, we'll be doing this here a little bit, a uh, little bit more in the future. And yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, this is uh, something that I hopefully turns out good. Hopefully, the uh, listeners enjoy it, and hopefully, we can continue this. Right on. Let's get into the interview. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> Well, for our next guest on Bench Racing Radio, we're bringing in uh, experienced promoter, race director, equipment manager, jack of all trades, uh, former Red River Co-op Speedway truck promoter, Blair Bodley. How's it going, Blair? Hey, good, Eric. Thanks very much. You forgot my intro. You said jack of all trades, but it's jack of all trades and master of none. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I was being generous with jack in some of those categories, but... <laughs> Uh, so yeah um uh no great to have you on man what uh, how's life been lately ah uh, you know what really uh really good just busy doing my back and doing my own thing again and uh it it's funny because this whole covid period and i'm sure you've experienced it too it sort of changed everybody's perspective as to uh you know what's important and what's not and what you need and and what you don't and what you can get away from and what you can't um, so it's been a bit of, for me, I mean, it's been a bit of a, it's been a bit of an eye opener, but uh, in a really good, uh, really good situation, a really good place right now. Yeah. 
Oh, that's great. We'll uh, we'll get to what you're working at nowadays yeah. and that stuff uh, later on in the interview. But we'll start off like we always do. We'll go back to the start and, uh, and tell us about uh, about growing up as a kid in, in Headingley and uh, or not Headingley, sorry, Charleswood. Yeah, how dare I? Yeah, and uh, and you know your your first uh, your connection to the the racetrack there. Well, you know it's it's funny because uh, and I was talking to some parents here at the rink the other day saying how. As a parent, you have no idea what impact you're making on your kids at the time because you're just running through life and your day-to-day activities. But my dad was always uh, always had a little bit of a racing bug. He never raced himself, mm-hmm. um, but was always interested in anything that was racing. And he took me out to Beaujolais, and I'm pretty sure it was in 1968. And I think at that time, uh, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there was close to 10,000 people at Beauzeger back in those days. No and as a, as a kid, um, I remember all they had around that racetrack was uh, those old wooden frost fences, yeah. you know, that half the pickets were broken. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember what, or wiggling my way through like 10 rows of people to get right up to the front. And back in those days, there were no safety measures. I mean, those I mean, things, were, they were, no, none. They were... <laughs> There's a, a like maybe a, a four foot bank, yeah. and then the the snow fence was right on the edge of the track. And it was back in the day where I think it was Yvonne Duhamel and Larry Coltham and all the the Rupp brothers. And yeah. I mean these guys were still going 100 miles an hour. And at that time, I was I was hooked. And then I became a snowmobile nut and racing fanatic from that day forward. I was eight years old. Yeah. So it, it it just goes to show you how where no matter what you do, if you can get a young kid introduced into something and they like it that memory will probably stick with them for the rest of their life and may even help guide what direction they end up they end up taking yeah absolutely you know it's something that like you say people may not recognize it at the time but that you know you still remember that oh yeah like clear as day you know yeah and being able to see guys like those old school guys and the midnight express and the uh what was articats race team called i don't know um the Midnight Express, I think, was Polaris. Uh, I remember seeing uh, Gilles Villeneuve yeah. when he came from Quebec and Big Bertha, that red bus of his all by himself, yeah. and ran all three classes, his own mechanic, and just cleaned up that day. So really, really great memories in a time where oval racing will probably never get to mm-hmm. get to again. Yeah. So it's, I consider myself extremely fortunate to have been able to experience that. Yeah. Yeah, and let's chat about your dad a little bit. Uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's Keith Bodley. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people in Winnipeg might know that from the Keith Bodley Memorial Arena. Um, but just a, an all-around great guy, the kind of pillar of the community type of guy. Yeah, he was totally community involved. Um, always his first one to put his hand up when a project needed to be done. Um, he just had a, a drive and compassion for whatever it was that he he did um you know he started off at uh gmac which is located down portage avenue just around the range area area there started off with gmac and at the age of 35 he didn't get the transfer that he wanted um and at uh 35 years old he quit um with a family of four my mom didn't work and started his own insurance business and he did that for like i think it was 12 years and at the age of uh 47 i think he he retired so it, he way smarter than i was because <laughs> i i'm nowhere close to being retired 
But I figure I figure I could probably take the afternoon off on the day that I'm gonna die. I should be able to afford that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but and he was just always, you know, having having kids and involved in the community, and he was just always that guy that just liked to be that just liked to be involved. And yeah. you know, the arena came about because there was a shortage of ice time in the uh, in all of Winnipeg, and uh, they had the property there. And uh, decided that he was going to build a rink. So we took it on from a range in the financing to then once they got the financing, they realized they needed a, a sort of building, they needed a project manager. So we signed on as a project manager. And then once that was done, they realized that they needed a building manager. So then he managed the facility. And then uh, shortly after that, he was diagnosed with cancer and passed away at the age of 57 years old, which is it's, by any study standards, it's way, yeah. way too young. Yeah, and, and you probably don't didn't realize how young that was, you know, back then. Till I'm now. 62. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. yeah. And then it's it, it when I stop and think about it. I mean, it really it does hit. Yeah. You know, it does hit hard when you're going like I can't imagine my kids being like around like without me yeah. being in their lives. So yeah, okay. it's, it's it seems kind of surreal sometimes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, so so you kind of. You were also really involved with hockey and, uh, and you know, being around the sport quite a bit. Yeah, I was, uh, when I got out of high school, uh, I worked for a little bit uh, and I was always interested in, in carpentry. I always knew I wanted to do something where I was going to be working with my, with my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, a desk job just wasn't up my alley. And I, I knew if I did that, that I'd get stuck there for the rest of my life. Um, so I, I went to Red River and I was taking carpentry. Uh, and then once I got to the end of that course, I realized that I didn't want to be a carpenter for the rest of my life either. <laughs> and my dad stumbled across this little sporting goods business. I think it was called Corby's Skate Shop. And it was located in St. James. And I think it's in the Allard Arena. Yeah. And he was selling. And my dad came home one day and said, hey, I got this guy that wants to sell this business. Are you interested? And of course, it was in hockey and sporting goods. And I was like all over it. Yeah. And at that time, we repaired golf clubs cross-country ski equipment like every time a sporting goods equipment that you could think of right. but not hockey hmm. and even at that age i said to my dad this is all backwards like why are we fixing downhill skis in winnipeg but yet we're not servicing the hockey community because there's way more hockey players than there is so we went out and bought our first skate sharpener uh and then uh, uh bought got it expanded that uh, ended up uh, buying another business from a gentleman by the name of Peter Williamson and Lindsay Gull, who were both involved in the Olympics. So Lin- Lindsay's still around today, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as a cyclist. And Peter was involved in speed skating. Mm-hmm. And uh, the company was called Phoenix Sports, and it's a company that I still have that I still have and operate today. So it, it morphed from fixing golf clubs and ski equipment to buying a skate sharpener and then into what it is today and then that sort of steered my whole hockey path right. and then hockey and racing sort of cross paths so i've had both of them i've been lucky enough to have both of them in my life at the same time that's that's pretty good lifestyle yeah yeah i, I try to cram as much of that into my life around my day job so exactly yeah. and it is my day job so i mean it's pretty sweet yeah, that's pretty good yeah. yeah yeah so you had you know you got to be pretty good at what you were doing there and you uh the last time i was over at your place you showed me a, a really cool letter that you still have oh uh, was that from john ferguson yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i should frame that and stick it up one day so the uh at the time when we were getting involved in the hockey community i was uh, uh 
friends with the uh, one of the guys at the Winnipeg Jets, and I knew that they were going to be looking for an equipment manager. So I applied uh, and became friends with the uh, with the gentleman that actually ended up with a job. So it was between him and me. So you know, as a twist of fate, one way or the other, you know, maybe I get the job and I'm on a completely different career path. Yeah. Um, Pat O'Neill, who was with the Jets, he's still with the Vancouver Canucks. Actually, it's his birthday today. Yeah. Um, he's still with the Vancouver Canucks. We reconnected uh, last year and had a lot of laughs about some old times. But I mean, even back in those days, like everything was so different. Like security wasn't what it was. And after the game, we were allowed to go sit in the lounge with, you know, all the NHL players. And I mean, they were all the same age as us. Right. So it was just like hanging out with your, with your buddies, but they were just really good at playing hockey and I wasn't. So <laughs> That's funny. But yeah. You know, that, that, that letter, like you said, it's so cool to, you know, it was a very well-written letter too, just saying that, you know, Hey, you know, keep your, uh, keep your nose to the grindstone and, and you'll get an opportunity in this business. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, it, like, can you imagine if it would have went the other way? Like, that's that's a fantastic career. Yeah. Guys get paid well. They work damn hard. Yeah. They really do. But uh, those know. guys work way harder than anybody thinks they do. Oh, okay? the, the hours there are insane. But as you get the NHL, it's a really good place because once you get in, mm-hmm. um, unless something goes terribly wrong, you're yeah. there for pretty much the life of the uh, the life of the team. So yeah. Uh, and you know, Pat's same age as me, and he's still. Still he's still there and figures he's got another few. He loves it. He yeah. loves the travel and the, the lifestyle that it brings. So uh, that'd be pretty yeah, great. Good on uh, good on him. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I got to run a speedway. He didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> you got to meet Kenny Wallace. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you uh, so that that opportunity doesn't pan out, but you're still running your uh, your shop and doing pretty well here, and uh, and then. Well, the one thing that I was always trying to figure out was how the hell did you ever get involved with the, the snowcross thing? You know, that came back from, because while I was self-employed at Phoenix Sports, mm-hmm. um, always being involved, it was a case where, and you know the drill, you always go riding with your buddies and you always think, I always thought that I was, well, I didn't think, I mean, I was a much better rider than all my friends, but right. I didn't know whether I was that much better or... <clears throat> whether they were just poor riders. So I thought the only way to figure this out is there was a circuit around. It was called the Can-Am Racing Circuit. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I might as well just put on my big boy pants and go race with these guys and see, like, what this whole racing thing is all about. Um, I learned quickly that I was a much better organizer than I was a racer. Uh, I was, back in those days, like, when you, if you're, it was all cross-country racing. And when you were cross-country racing, I mean the amount of carnage back in the day on those sleds, you know, when you ruin something or wreck something, which is almost every event. Cause I mean, you're just driving Side balls over the wall all the, the time. Area. Do you even get to ride it before or is it? Uh, you can go out and pre-ride the, okay. you can go out and pre-ride the course okay. the, uh, the, day, be- the, yeah, the yeah. day before, but you know, it's out it's here and I mean, right. it gets windy the night before. Yeah. So that area that you thought, it's you know, windy. was a hundred mile an hour stretch now has a finger drift in the middle of it. And right. Um, but anyways, it was flying through the air sideways, uh, sideways, <laughs> upside down, uh, first race, brand new sled, uh, was where there's this trail through a marsh, hit a big rock, bent the bulkhead in the sled. But in, in those days, that's the worst thing you could do because yeah. the entire sled had to come apart, like right. tunnel off the bulkhead, replace right. the bulkhead motor, everything back yeah. together. And it, uh, 
uh, this is actually a funny story because it couldn't get that sled, couldn't get the sled running right again. But I knew that Danny Enns from Oak Bluff had yeah. exactly the same sled as me. And I knew that Danny, he was successful at running the Sioux, uh, the Sioux 500. Yeah. And just out of the blue, I didn't know him. I called him up, introduced myself and said, here, I got the same sled as you. Here's what my problem is. He said, bring it over to my shop. And after many, many nights of like late nights, like two, three o'clock in the morning of working on this thing, stripped it apart. And it wasn't about cheating with him. It was just about getting everything to roll properly. And right. His thing to me was, if your sled is true and everything is the way it should be, you should be able to tip a snowmobile trailer and that sled should almost roll off it right. without having to tug and pull and, and no carbides in the yeah. front, obviously. So we got, he put the sled together. Uh, we had a race out at Lundar and they had a long stretch there. And on the speed trap, I was clocked faster down through that speed trap than any of the factory Arctic guys. Oh. Now that's no, that's not due to my ability. Right. That was just due to the way that he had that sled set up. That thing rolling. Wow. He had that thing rolling. And so what happened was, is I raced that year, learned that I didn't like working on snowballs a whole bunch. I just like riding them. Yeah. But I could see that that organization was in, it was one guy trying to do everything. So I said, Hey man, do you like, do you need a hand? And he said, I do. And a year later he said, okay, I think you got it. I'm out of here. And then <laughs> that was it. I ran that organization for, man, it must've been like 10 years, I guess. Oh. And we just organized, uh, cross-country races around the province of Manitoba. Then we expanded our boundaries a little bit, had a race in, uh, we had one in Thompson. We went up to Thunder Bay a little bit. We're involved in the Ironman down in Deep River Falls. Uh, we're part of the 500 that right. ran here. We were able to get it to start in Winnipeg for a few years right. in, a, in a row. So that whole process, each time you take on something, and I didn't have any experiences at all. Yeah, It was just a case of, well, you just, I just wasn't afraid to try. Yeah. Um, and you just throw yourself in it. Lots of it's learning while you go, but a, a lot of stuff when you're trying to figure it out, it, it's just, it's common sense and just having the ability to stop and, and, and just think ahead of what needs to be done, which is probably no different than putting a race car together or looking at setups or when you're looking at a racetrack, it's all common sense and you have to look forward. Right. So, and then, and then just all the skills that I learned while I was doing that, like a little bit here and a little bit there. I wish I knew, uh, back then what I knew now because yeah. I would do things a lot differently but I mean I'm sure everybody says that right right yeah, yeah. so and that's how uh that's so I, well I started doing that and then well, we'll, I, we'll I, stop we'll hang right there yep. about uh how it went into the the snowcross side of it here we'll uh, we'll pause right here for the uh misfire round with Mr. Anthony whoa thanks so much Eric uh Blair this is your first time and probably your last time on the show. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that, no. choice, that choice might not be yours. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, this is a misfire round. You did mention uh, beforehand that you have heard the first couple episodes of this. And what this is all about is basically you have one option out of two in total. You're not supposed to overthink it. You're not supposed to say both. You can't say neither nor. These rules were created by Rick Delane. Um so we're going to just, it's just 10 quick questions. Are you ready? Sure. All right. Dry or tacky? Dry. Number two, McDonald's or Wendy's? Wendy's. Number three, whales or sharks? Whales all the way. Number four, Tim Hortons or Starbucks? 
Starbucks. Number five, true or false or multiple choice? True or false. Number six, hydrogen or electric? Ooh, hydrogen. Number seven, cowboys or astronauts? Cowboys, of course. Number eight, prefer to text or talk on phone? Text. Number nine, audiobooks or physical books? Physical. And number 10, stub a toe or twist an ankle? Twist an ankle. All right, there you have it, the misfire round. It was easy, super easy. Oh, yeah. I stubbed a toe once. I could barely walk. (laughs) Not with a stubbed toe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. (laughs) I was twisting an ankle. One time we were actually, when we were using uh, Jamie Ansu's. the big Skeeter racing trailer. There, oh, yeah. That big unit. Uh, he, he came out to the racetrack one night, and we were having a drink after the races, and we're standing there, and, and you guys had run the sheep's foot through the pits, but somebody oh, didn't go and run the... Uh, the, 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 the box scraper. The, yeah, the scraper on it after, so they were, the sheep's foot holes were everywhere. And <laughs> Jamie was watching me as I took a step back and put a foot in the hole, uh, and he swore that my foot went all the way around. <laughs> He was like, oh, my God, I thought you broke that thing. And I was like, I was real. I was down. It was all bruised and real bad sprain. And yeah, those things were nasty. That wasn't great. Yeah, oh, yeah, those things will get you. Yeah, the old sheep's foot. But it is an important tool, though. Absolutely. It, yeah. And, you know, just to, just on that path because you're here already, the only, like that, if it rains, you need that thing. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt. And if you ever were at the racetrack and there were always sheep's foot holes there, and they weren't filled in. It was only because we ran out of time because you got to work on the pit area. Right. And then you got to jump over the track, but you need to get the pit area done first right. because you got to load everybody in right. be able to. So it's kind of like putting drywall or mud on your wall. Like you got to tape it and mud it first. Right. And sometimes you just don't get the paint out right away. Yeah. And that's basically what would happen in that situation. Not yeah. ideal, but sometimes no, yeah, it was it just. Happens, yeah. yeah and, and nobody ever understood that. They would yeah. just come yelling oh, yeah. and. <laughs> You're yeah. gonna break everyone's legs. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, so back to uh, back to the snowmobile stuff. So yeah, so sorry, I got. So I, didn't, I didn't realize you ran that for so long. Yeah, it was for it was about ten years, and then I got a call from. Uh, uh, I had called a gentleman by the name of Joe Duncan because I met him at an ISR snowmobile meeting, mm-hmm. and I said to Joe, "I'd like to go to the X Games because I knew he was involved." Um, it like, how do I get tickets for it? He says hang on a sec, I'll call you back. He called me back an hour later and he said, I got two tickets for you to fly to the X Games. You come help me work and we'll pay you like a hundred bucks a day. And I go, and all accommodations and food and yeah. everything were taken care of. So I went from asking if I could pay my own way to go to see the X Games right. and everything was paid for me to get there. And then once I got there, he said, uh, we're starting up a snowmobile circuit and we'd like you to come on and be our race director. Um, same thing again, though. Like I was absolutely terrified because running a cross country race, yeah, and snow cross races at that time. Like when you went to Duluth, I remember rolling into Duluth once to go watch them. They were racing at one o'clock in the morning. A snow cross race, you start at ten, you're done by but three because it's got to be done before dark, and right. everybody goes has beers and go home. Right. And I, and I, there was like twelve hundred entries that day. We would deal with like eighty, yeah. so I was terrified, <laughs> um, but I said yes. Sure. And thought, well, I'll just work my way. I'll just figure out how this works and work my way through it. And then I did that for, I did that for 12 years. So that's how I got into the, into that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, while I was at the tail end of that, I decided I didn't want to travel anymore. I want to spend more time at Phoenix sports. 
then they started an ATV series. So we were able to, and it ran against the GNC. Uh, so I was involved in creating a, a, an ATV series, like from the ground up. Mm. And we ran that for two years and then they just ran out of money. Right. Um, was working at Phoenix Sports and I think it was Barry Dawson came by the shop and said, you know, the Speedway's looking for somebody. And I go, nah, you know what? I had enough of racing. I've been doing it for like 20 years. And then I started thinking, you know, it might fit perfectly with Phoenix Sports because it's winter and then the Speedway summer. So I ended up calling Derek Weiss. He said, uh, I'm looking for somebody. I'm going to, uh, where would they be going to Florida, I guess? Yeah. You know, to go race and I'll come back. And we talked and Derek hired me and I was at the Speedway for 12 years, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing, <laughs> figuring out while I went. Uh, Seems sorry. like I spent a lot of my life just figuring shit <laughs> yeah. out. You got to respect it, you know. <laughs> a lot of people would only well, do what they're comfortable with. But it's yeah. that's where I learned that it is it is definitely possible for anybody to step out of their comfort zone. There's something weird. I don't know what it is for me that there's a little bit of an adrenaline rush. There's that anxiety and fear that goes along with it. But if you can get past that point mm-hmm. and just quit worrying about it. And just throw yeah. yourself into it. And I did it again here at this arena. Yeah. They said, hey, I said, what's involved? Oh, well, you got to look after the ice, the ice plants, the Zamboni. I go, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. And I thought, I didn't know how to run a tractor at the Speedway. I didn't know how to make a racetrack. Maybe I don't still. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> do you ask? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not asking Mike Vulcan. <laughs> it, uh, but it's just, a, you just have to put the time and thought into it and, and it, it uh, I, I would encourage anybody if they're like that. Yeah. Just, just do it. Quit yeah. thinking about it and just do it. Yeah. No, that's. I'm, I'm in a position right like that right now. I got to stop overthinking what I'm trying to do here and just. just Sometimes you just, just have to jump in with both feet go. and then figure out how to swim later. Yeah. Chances are you'll come to the top. Probably it's not impossible. Lots of people have done it before you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so I mean that's that's quite the awesome career. I want to I want to backtrack a little bit with the snowcross thing. So, yeah. you know, like what, what was your favorite event of the year for that one? Uh, Deadwood for snowcross mm-hmm. when we made the trip out to uh, out to Deadwood. Deadwood South South Dakota. Dakota, yeah. It's just it's such gorgeous country out there. The facility itself, it was a smaller crowd. There were smaller numbers uh, that we were racing because they didn't have lights, right. so the numbers were quite manageable. And you had time at the end of the day to get out into the town of Deadwood right. and just hang out and they had all lots of old school hotels and it was just a really, really cool experience. And the next one would be Lake Geneva in, uh, in Wisconsin. It was our biggest race of the year. Right. Um, and just the, the, the tension and the, everything that went along with it because it was our points final and all the points battles were settled that weekend. Yeah. Um, and the weather always seemed to be nice there and it was a gorgeous facility and that was uh, those two would definitely rank as my my favorite well I must say that the one we had here in Winnipeg was probably Edison Point Downs yeah those ones were pretty uh, those ones were pretty cool too yeah it was you guys came for two years with that deal? two two years at Edison Point Downs yeah. and one year at the uh, at, at the, the Gold ballpark Ice. yeah and same thing again at the ballpark. And it was like, okay, well, you guys can come here, but you can't drive your snowmobiles till you get them into the staging area. Right. So it's just trying to work with city officials and government and trying to figure out a way to get them. So we ended up pushing the snowmobiles like across, the, and we had to wait for the crosswalk. Like they wouldn't allow us. You wouldn't close the street for they you. Wouldn't, they wouldn't close the street. So everybody's standing there. Imagine it, right? 
There's this professional <laughs> snowcross tour, and you're sat there waiting at a crosswalk Suddenly to push like a snowmobile so across the street. <laughs> but it was just a case that you just have to. It, there's no point in fighting it because you yeah. weren't going to win that no, battle. Yeah. So you just got to figure out another way, and you just make do. Wow. So, but yeah, and then That's it, wild. Uh, I uh, I volunteered as a flag did. at one of those. I got hit by a snowmobile. I was going to say, if somebody yeah. got hit, was it you? It was me. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a good time. Uh, we're and they run. You guys run. I think it was 140 races in a day or something. Yeah, we were like that. 100 in Winnipeg. It was 135 or 140. Yeah, yeah, like just all day long. You're out there dressed in your snowmobile suit. And they had a few spares so you could go in and get it's some a, food and take a break. It's but, a long day. I don't oh, know if people realize because I mean you're it's just nuts. standing out there. Yeah, and if it and it was, I think it was, if memory serves me correctly, it was it was cold and windy. It was yeah. It wasn't great. It wasn't super warm weather. And then yeah, it was an earlier race in the day. You know, guys came into the big bank corner, and uh, they all kind of piled up on the outside, and then one guy kind of got turned over, so there was a big pileup out there. It's one of the guys that, who had a bad start. He figured this was his opportunity. He chopped it to the bottom and just made a straight line to cut the corner off. Well, the problem was I was standing there waving my yellow flag, <laughs> so he didn't realize that until I, had, I was already hanging onto his hood. And his, uh, his eyeballs were about the size of dinner plates. Oh, I'm sure. And then he grabbed the brakes and I went rolling down the hill. <laughs> we, uh, at that same, that same event, we had, uh, you always have to get guys to make snow because we didn't have enough snow. It wasn't like yeah. this year, right? So yeah, it was early December. We always brought our own snow making equipment to every event. Like it was a really highly orchestrated uh, deal to go from event to event to event. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to get guys to run snowmaking equipment, you're just looking for volunteers. And my brother said, or I went and said, Hey, can you do this? He says, what do I have to do? I go, nothing. You just have to stay up all night. And you got to watch this machine. And if the wind changes direction, then you just have to move it around. Yeah, no problem. Well, he fell asleep <laughs> and covered the complete, the, the semi trailer was completely covered in snow because the wind shifted direction and that snow when it comes out, it's wet. It's, yeah. It's like ice. And it, it's, yeah. So we spent three hours with shovels and pickaxes digging this trailer out of the snow because he fell asleep. So that's always a standing joke. Good job, Colin. Yeah. So if anybody sees my brother, please commend him on his uh, snowmaking ability because I don't, think, I, I don't yeah. think there's anybody better. <laughs> How many people could make it a, turn a snowmobile trailer into snow? Uh, he can. Oh man, that's great. So, so yeah, I mean that that was that was really cool. And then getting to come over and uh, and race and, and run the, the dirt track there. I mean, as a promoter walking around, like what what was your day like? Is there a certain point where you stop, where you you, you would stop worrying about the event, or were you ever really anxious before it, or is it just kind of always anxious? Yeah, you're you're always um, me, anyways. Yeah. Um, I always thought I was anxious because I really cared about what was going on. I I think maybe if you had an attitude where you didn't care one way or another, then it was a lot easier to do the job. But I took everything. I would take it home with me. Um, you're always looking at the forecast. Uh, you're looking you can, at rain. You can quit the mean, weather, man. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's true. And I would take advice, you know, from farmers because you know if the wind's coming this way and this at this speed, then it means that this system's blowing in. So you learned mm-hmm. you learned a lot. Um, but you're always, because it, especially, and it usually seems to be windy out there. So it was yeah. always a, a battle as to, you know, what to do. So you're always out there the night before, late, trying to get water into the racetrack. So you get home at one, two o'clock in the morning to get back up at, you know, five or six to get back out to try and get water into the track before it starts drying out. Right. And if you put too much water in it, 
and then sealed it over. Then it got really sloppy and muddy. And then if you didn't get enough, then it was like super dry and it was burning everybody's eyes out. So there was out because you never want anybody to go to the speedway and, and have a lot of dirt in their face. Cause that's not a racer can accept it. Right. Because a lot of guys like it dry, but they're not sitting in the stands. So that first time person that comes to the racetrack to have the sandblasted all race long, yeah. that that's not that's not enjoyable. No, and, and that's all. the thing we you know a lot of racers they they discount that and say ah I mean you know come on it's just you go to the states and they sell dust goggles at the at the food stand and and they deal with it and it's like well. It's a that's a different breed, man. Like, it's, a, it's a totally different clientele. And I guarantee you that wouldn't be first timers that would be buying right into it like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like when there's no. that much dirt in your food. <clears throat> it's not, it's just, it's, it's not enjoyable. And yeah. I know, um, and I always carried this with me. I know I left the Speedway. Uh, I was a huge fan. Uh, and I walked away one night because uh, of crashes and they couldn't get a race started. It was super stocks. Yeah. And I think they must have tried like 10 times and they'd run one lap crash. This is before you're running. You were just before I was running it, like probably 15 years before right. I was uh, involved in it. And I just got up with my buddies and I walked away and I said, this is like nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and I never went back. The, the next time I went back was when I started working there. <laughs> never went back. Wow. So I was very cognizant about how important it was to keep that show rolling. Yeah. Nobody wants to see dead time. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to see something flowing. And then, you know, with Darren Palin's uh, help, um, we changed the program. We took our start time from 7.30 to 7 o'clock, and, uh, which everybody said, you can't do that. Yeah. And Everyone's said, well, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Oh, no, it's been tried before. But people are very resilient to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? A couple of heats started without guys being ready, and the next race, you guess what? They, fast, they, yeah. they were there. And now... <laughs> Seven o'clock is great. We're done at like if things go well, like at nine thirty, ten o'clock at night. But our goal was always ten o'clock at night, and yeah. probably ninety percent of the time we hit that we hit mm-hmm. that goal. And if it if we didn't hit it, it wasn't because of um, poor organization on our part. It was we had a big accident yeah. and maybe didn't get it cleaned up in time. Yeah, and that's the thing that people. It's a dumbest argument I hear from people like. Well, I mean, they're going to try and run the show like clockwork, but you can't time it. You know, what if there's a big crash? Yeah, maybe there will be. And then that night we might be late. Yeah. But how about every other night when there isn't? And You still just, have to have a plan in place. Yeah, you no plan, still right? have to have that objective and you still have to have that, that goal. Yeah. And even if that goal does happen, then you may have to shorten stuff up on the other side or find another way to become a little more efficient during the, during the program. Yeah. You know, like one idling lap around the racetrack what's that like a minute yeah you know on that racetrack so if you do that five times that's five minutes right there yeah done yeah. and then you do that for every class it's easy to to get back 10 minutes exactly yeah yeah for sure so what what was your favorite part of any race night like you know the favorite part um and i always remember this because you you go through the i'll say the stress and anxiety or you know because you don't have anybody there telling you what to do no you're you've got everybody looking at you don't waiting you for you them to done. tell you what to do and it's like they have no idea you don't yeah. know <laughs> it uh it was just sitting there and you're, you're tired because you're there like late the nights before you're there early in the morning uh you're trying to figure everything out because it, it's it was so important for me and all the guys that worked with me we just wanted things to be perfect because you got 75 guys coming there that night and you want every single one of them to have a good time. So there's a little pressure that goes along with that. Um, and you're tired. 
uh, and you just you, you think you're on time or you think you might be half hour and you're just trying to judge of when that last load of water was on. Um, you're, you're exhausted. Uh, you just want the day to be done. And then all of a sudden you hear the cars one by one start to fire up in the pit area. Yeah. And for me, that was just like a breath of fresh air. And it was such a calming, uh, such a calming moment. And it was like, this is why I do this. And then they all rumble out on the track to do hot laps. And yeah. it's like, oh man, this is, yeah, I'm going to do this again next week. <laughs> Asked me two hours ago, maybe not so much, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's really funny. I and mean, that's the one thing I can always remember about yeah. that. And then once the racing started, um, if everything was organized for the, for the race, then basically it was just a matter of sitting back and just watching and then having to problem solve during the course of the night right. and then just get to interact with, you know, your sponsors and, all the, I mean, you see the same faces there mm -hmm. like all the time um, and just getting to interact with people. I mean, the racing community, I don't care whether it's snowmobiles or whether it's car racing or snowcross or cross country, the racing community is all the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody really cares about what's going on and everybody, believe it or not, cares about everybody else. Um, I'm not, I shouldn't say everybody, but the majority. And yeah. that, that you can't, you can't trade that community that, that racing community gives you. And then I, I found it here in this little hockey rink. It's very much that same. Yeah. And I, I thrive in that environment. Right. So for me, it's just a, anywhere I can get involved in a situation like that, I will. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's great. A cubicle in nine to five. Yeah. Not, not so, so much. much. No, no. Yeah. That, uh, it's definitely a different, uh, different environment for sure. And I miss it. Yeah. You know, I went out uh, this, I think it was this summer, I went out to the racetrack. And it's not because I didn't want to go to the racetrack. It's just when you when you, when you you move away from something, or I find when I do, you just end up replacing that time. Mm -hmm. It's not like on Thursday nights, like my Thursday nights were open. Right. I just felt that Anita and I were always doing something or we're taking off the lake. And then finally I said, like, if we want to get the Speedway, we have to pick a date and make sure that we, yeah. that we go. Yeah. And we went and I, I absolutely, I love the online ticketing program that they had. Yes. You could go in there, you could see where your seat was. And I mean, it was everything that we should have done years ago because <laughs> the technology was there. It was. And yeah. just to be able to go in there and there was no panicking about where you're sitting because I knew exactly where I was going to sit. And I had my daughter with me who worked in the concessions there for 12 years. And she looked at me and she says, do you know that this is the first time that we've actually sat down and just watched racing. I went, wow, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It was semi enjoyable, but I wanted to steal somebody's radio just so I could hear what was going on. <laughs> you just felt the urge to run. Yeah, there. not much. I'm, 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 I'm a fan, but once you're involved and you get to know the intricate details of everything that's going on, I mean, and I could see problems going on, yeah. but I always, uh, my thing always was, is that if there's, you're right. The, the definition of being professional or semi-professional is the ability to be able to deal with problems and not have anybody in the stands see them. Right. If you can do that, the minute that the fans start seeing all your problems on the racetrack, there's a problem there somewhere. Right. There's a problem with every event. There's a problem at a Jets game. There's a problem at the Bombers. And if you think those things are flawless, then you're sadly mistaken. Mm -hmm. But they know how to, they know how to <clears throat> cover those things up or how to change yeah, uh, or, or step up, react on the fly, and, react yeah. on the fly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and I miss that part about racing too. I miss that whole 
the that that problem solving yeah. aspect of stuff, right? Yeah, that's where I learned it. There, nothing is ever not fixable. Right. There's always a solution to a problem. Always. Yeah. You may have to use wire and duct tape, but it's you can fix it. Yeah, that's that's a racer's <laughs> mentality for sure. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Is the clock the clock doesn't stop? Nope. No, the people are sitting that there. Shows, and and the people's attention span this day. I, we always figured we had two and a half hours. Yeah. You got two and a half hours to get people in and out. Um, you know, back when Carolyn Braid was uh, with us, she did such a fantastic job. Of, remember all the contesting and everything oh, yeah. that was going on in the in the stands yeah. and the bike races. But I mean, that was like weeks of organization just for that one event, and you had to be like a month out. Like we were having meetings there, talking about stuff that was going on in the next month. Right. So it's it's a very it's it's a very more complicated than it looks on the outside. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What was that I said before? Everything looks manageable until you have to manage it. <laughs> I always like yeah. that. Yeah, that's yeah. that's very true. So I've been taking up most of your airtime here. So no, no, no. Anything it you'd is, like? Yeah, anything yeah, you'd like not, to say? It's, not, this oh, it's your airtime. Yeah, yeah, you're the interviewee. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, I think it's time for the uh, in the driver's seat, or as we've been calling it lately, the uh, in the promoter's boots. The promoter's boots, yeah. They rarely sit down all day. Yeah. So. Ain't that the truth? All right. Well, these yeah. ones are longer questions. Uh, I just came up with them, so uh, answer them however just you may. Now. Yeah, just within the last fifteen minutes. Yes. Um, so, uh, you can answer this with multiple stories, a single story, comparisons, contrast, pie charts, bar graphs, whatever you need. All right. Okay. Number one, what was the hardest thing that you learned being a promoter or organizer? Trying to please everybody. You can't, you need to do, and you need to have a very strong belief in what you wanted to accomplish and where you wanted to get to while taking other people's input and advice, you still had to weigh that out and factor in, you had to look at the bigger picture. So somebody's advice wasn't what you needed to, to grab onto. That was just a part of many pieces that you had to sort of take apart, analyze and digest to get to the, to the result that you wanted. But you have to have a strong belief in where you wanted to go and then try not to get swayed, but yet, still have the ability to realize that if you were on the wrong path, you had to have the ability to realize it and to be able to change and, and, and uh, move in a different direction right away very quickly. Mm. Well, it's, it's, was that something that you, you learned like later on at the dirt track or was that throughout the whole career? Or? You know what? It was something that I learned. Uh, I learned a lot of that back in snow cross racing. Um, being in uh, and specifically WSA and being a race director, yeah. um, the, the the most important thing I think I took away from that is once you make a call, stick with it. Yeah. Um, you may make a mistake, own up to it. Right. If you make a mistake and somebody got the short end of the stick, don't start changing stuff on the fly because you'll just make that stuff happens everywhere. It happens in in any sport that has a human element to it. Look at F one last year, but we won't get to that because. That's a sore spot. Um, yeah, I could have done that job better. Uh, it's just a, a 
but own up to it. Go back to the, the go back to the guys. And if you have to be public about it, be public about it, and just say to people like, "Yeah, this is you know hindsight being twenty twenty, and now getting a chance to think about it, I would have done it differently." But then you got to remember that and don't make that mistake. Right. Don't make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone once said in a meeting, it may or may not have been Terry Volts, who said, "Just because we you didn't get your way doesn't mean we didn't listen to you." Uh, it was Terry, actually. Yeah, I know it was Terry. <laughs> I think you were in that. Uh, I mean, that's quite a few years ago. Yeah, I was because I because I remember him saying that. Yeah, it was a very. I thought it was it was a very powerful line and uh, from a very experienced person. Uh, whether people liked him or not, he most certainly had a lot of experience and was able to share it. And I just that stuck with me, actually. You know. Um, yeah. it has stuck with me ever since he's, he said it. And that's probably seven or eight years ago now. Well, you know, Terry's a really good example of what we were just talking about because, and you're right. Like a lot of people really had a hate on for Terry Volts, but Terry wasn't afraid to stand up. Mm. He knew what direction was had to go. And he wasn't afraid to stand up and say, no, this is, you guys can't do this. And you know what, when you look back now, Anthony, in some of those meetings, mm-hmm. He was 100% right at stopping some of the chaos that would go on in, in absolutely. inside that room. Absolutely. You guys are talking about the annual promoters meeting? Yeah, the annual promoters yeah. meeting where, you know, rule changes and whatnot. Right. And, and, and Terry could see everything getting off track. Right. Um, and he just had that. And he and he commanded the room. Yeah. He would stand up and go, stop. And and it would stop. And it was sort of was a, I always thought was sort of did a great job. I'm getting sidetracked here, but yeah. I, I always thought that was sort of did a great job. And for people <clears throat> sitting on the outside, it's easy to complain about anything. Sure. But when you get inside that room and you see how it works and you see what they're trying to do, and you've got at the time we were there, I think 57 racetracks, mm. each one of them having a different opinion, not everybody's going to get their way. But Terry wasn't looking about himself, or I didn't think he was being self-centered. I think he was looking at the betterment of... Mm-hmm. was soda and i always took that away and thought that any decisions that we made at the speedway at that time were made for the betterment of the speedway mm-hmm. had not not me personally mm-hmm. um it was for the betterment of the racetrack and there was unpopular decisions that were made but yeah well at the end of the day the place has got to stay open right well, it's part of, and you know what maybe you're wrong you know maybe you make a yeah. thing and you, you, two years later, you go, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. But you don't know unless you try. Maybe yeah. you shouldn't have nine classes. Or raced on Mondays. <laughs> or raced yeah. on Mondays. <laughs> well, let's just say mistakes were made. <laughs> hey, but you know what? You tried, tried it. We, they gave it an honest try. They sure did. It was a good three years, yeah, we, wasn't we, it? We, we tried it. So you can say when somebody says that now, I could honestly say, I don't think that that would work. That's right. Yeah, but I would never tell anybody not to do it if they wanted to do it because they may have a, they a whole different yeah. set of circumstances. So, so it didn't work for us. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, and I always found uh, just going back quick before we go into question two, you know, when you think of Wasoda, there's there's so many tracks that come from so many different levels, right? Like, you know, you take a small track like Greenbush or Kenora or Emo or. Uh, Bemidji um, and then you know they go to that meeting with a certain perspective on 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 their economics of the whole thing and then you take bigger tracks like you know Proctor or Deer Creek um, or 
Viking or whatever that have like Granite City Speedway, you know, where there's hundred plus drivers, Ogilvy, hundred plus drivers there on a weekly basis with, you know, how many thousands of people um, versus maybe hundreds at these smaller tracks trying to come up with solutions that can work for the bigger tracks that have a hundred plus cars per week uh, versus the smaller tracks that might have 40, 50, 60 cars per week, you know, and trying to yeah. find that balance of decision-making because we've seen in proposals on the agendas in the past where, you know, that that's coming from a track that has a hundred plus cars, you know, exactly. versus right. a track that it proposes something that uh, may not even be on the radar of a track um, that is that big. So, um, it's, it is not an easy dynamic. That's for sure. No. And, and sometimes the smaller tracks sort of took, got the short end of the stick there, mm-hmm. but it was, you're still, you're playing, you're swimming in a big sea, right? Yeah, that's right. And don't even, and not even to touch the regional differences, the economical differences between what's happening in North or South Dakota versus Minnesota or Canada or Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Number two, uh, who do you enjoy watching the most in a competitive nature? So it could be from from the snowcross stuff, or from from dirt track racing, or from or, or from any other sport that you're connected to. Oh man, that's a it's a loaded question. I know that's a that's a tough one because I like anything that's competitive, and I don't care how fast it is or how slow it is. I just like anything that's competitive, and I like to be able to see personal skill come to the front um dave, dave miller has a great thing about that he says I, I, that's one thing i love about racing i don't care you could draw out a circle in a field and have a bunch of guys take a bunch of you know wrecked four cylinders and they're all gonna race them around but you know what you know why that's the best because one guy's gonna win yeah <laughs> And they're all, and they all want to be that guy, yeah. and that's what makes racing so great. Yeah, and that, and that's what I like about racing is the the, the competitive element is is so high. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'll take a look at. I'll just bring up Formula One this year mm-hmm. as compared to years past. Right. Completely new set of rules, mm-hmm. new cars, new engine rules, new budgets, and it's taken that field and turned it upside down. I like watching it now because it's now it's a matter of trying to see who can figure out the, 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 the you still need good equipment sure. to get there. You always do, but you can't see, legislate that out. But to see yeah, the yeah. big teams struggle or yeah. some big teams struggle because they can't get a handle on it, and then watch them through the course of the season get these little issues figured out. But yeah, that, that back to the original question, Anthony. I don't know if I could give you one specific example. I just, I like anything where I can see, like, competitiveness. I'll give you the easy out for the snow cross part. And just say Blair Morgan. And, uh... <laughs> you know what? And that was, I was super, and we were talking about this the other day. Um, I was extremely fortunate to be involved in that at that time. Yeah, because you know, that was right when he took off, right? Blair came from riding in Yellowstone on a 580 or 440 and he stood up the whole time around. Everybody said he can't do it because yeah. he's going to get tired, um, and completely revolutionized the entire snowmobile industry. Yeah, not just the racing, but the entire industry. It, the whole industry, the way sleds are made now, are because of Blair, Blair Morgan. And so to be able to watch back in those days and the competitiveness between those guys was, uh, and even within that 
Blair Morgan team trailer, mm-hmm. all those guys going head to head. So, and, and that stuff. Unfortunately, I was a race director at that time, so I didn't get to view it as a spectator. Right. You know, you were having to monitor their behavior on the racetrack, and because Blair was super aggressive from his motocross backgrounds, um, it was a, there was a, a tough line to, mm-hmm. to walk. And Jamie is my friend, so I mean, it sort of took the enjoyment. I still got to watch them, but from a completely different, right. from a completely different side. Right. Did I even answer the question? No. All right. Moving into number three. <laughs> moving into number three. What is the greatest event you ever promoted slash directed? What made it so good? You stumped him. I'm thinking because there's a couple. Yeah. You can pick um, two if you want. You know, I always like this, the start of our first, the, the first 500 here in Winnipeg, when we started on the, uh, on the floodway, um, simply because I was told that we weren't going to be able to do it. Um, and then it was, uh, having to work with all the, the different levels of government to try and be able to ride a snowmill ditch at hundred miles an hour down the ditch. Um, and all the logistics that went involved in that, um, that is probably one of the most satisfying events that I did. I didn't think that at the time. Um, I just wanted to crawl under a rock and go away. Um, but just the amount of work and the unknowns and every time you turned around, there was something new to deal with. And I think we had, I think we had 275 snowbills show up for that, uh, that one day. And then, then and at the, the, when you get there in the morning and you see them like all lined up in their flights and their heats and they're all teched and you go through all that. And just before the start of the race, you know, the helicopter that I arranged for medical purposes, you know, the helicopter takes off and is hovering over top and these sleds start rolling out one by one. And that was, that was super cool. And probably one of the highlights of my, of my, uh, career if you want to call it that yeah how many riders were they having that race 275 oh. yeah and it was a good thing we had that helicopter because he had to jump into the woods and pull somebody out who broke their their femur and it started bleeding so i mean if you don't get to that oh, yeah, they, accident they, 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 in time yeah, i mean you could lose that guy the guy was out of uh, i can't remember his name but he was out of new york oh really yeah and uh that helicopter went in underneath power lines something that they're not supposed to do, but it was a dire situation. So the, the money that it cost to have that helicopter there was paid for itself right, you know, right there. So. All right. Number four, what event went the most awry that you promoted directed? What went wrong? Oh man, this is going to sound like, Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) The, we had a uh, cross country race in rainy river. Uh, Weather was, sketchy going out there it was very mild uh we didn't have access to the same weather information that we did right now now we just go to our phones right and the weather network pops up and you can look 14 days on the road we didn't have that we went to rainy river and uh at about seven o'clock at night we went out and marked a trail Uh, it was a 50 mile loop and we're gonna run around that loop three times and uh went out and it started raining at about eight o'clock at night. And I remember getting up at four o'clock in the morning um, and walking out into the parking lot because it's 
that responsibility lies on you, right? To make the call and you don't want anybody to get hurt. And you walk outside and all the snow that was on the roof of the hotel was gone. And it was just pure water pouring off. It wasn't a downpour. It was just a steady drizzle. It had stopped in the morning, thought that we were going to have enough time or uh, the conditions would be okay. Started the race out within the first five minutes, got a report that somebody had broken their leg. They hit a stump that uh, uh, was underneath the snow, right. but they couldn't see it. Uh, we ended up only doing half of that first lap and bringing everybody, bringing everybody back in and then deciding we went to our rule book and there was, we could declare a winner just based on, cause we were timing everybody. Right. So we just declared a winner, uh, a winner by time. So it was, that was probably the, the one event that sticks out in my mind about just not having any control <laughs> over the environment uh, that you were situated in and just trying to make the best of it. And it just didn't, it just didn't work. So I, I think at the end of the day, we had a cross country race that we ran 27 miles and declared a winner at 27 miles. Um, number five, what is the one thing you miss about being involved in racing uh, of any form? Uh, people. Just racers and people. I, I miss, I, I miss, I miss the people and I, I I miss the people. I miss the the adrenaline rush that goes along with it. I miss the the problem solving that goes along, which leads me back to you know a statement that I made earlier about how I, I like that the ability to be able to take a situation where something's gone wrong and being able to, to to make it right or to make it as right as you can possibly make it. it it's that excitement that that surrounds it, and you don't get that anywhere else but racing because racing is such a fast-paced environment like nothing stops everything keeps everything keeps moving forward and you have to make that decision in that time and it takes a long time um, or for me anyways it took a long time to be comfortable being able to sit down look at something see what it is because you have to run through all the options in your head and you have to try and pick the best one that's the thing i miss most about about racing Especially when it comes to dirt track racing, because the track itself can be just as much of a problem as the program being a problem. Well, you know, and it, it, to your point, Anthony, it was two years ago we had a crash in corner one. Somebody that that old '57 Chevy went upside down and bounced to the track and tore out a yeah. huge. Yeah, chunk yeah, I remember that. Tore out a huge chunk of the racetrack. Yeah, and. Uh, I mean, we had to run and get there because the equipment's all parked away, right? So everybody can park. So we had to run and get the equipment. We had the box scraper, we had the sheep's foot. We had to fill in that big hole, water it, and then pack it in. I mean, it took a half hour. Um, but, I mean, it was something we had no other choice at that time because you you, you can't tell a racer to drive around the hole because It'll never if happen. it's the quickest way between point A and B, they're still going <laughs> to drive right. through it. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the uh, we, had, we did have a... Um, uh, I think it was a James Wall or the Brad Wall Memorial where it rained as everybody was driving into the pits and I ended up having to take the box scraper and scrape all the slimy mud off the top of the racetrack <laughs> and deposit it in about 30 piles in the middle. Hmm. That's about the show. 
and we still got the show and that night we ran late but later than we wanted to but we still got the yeah. because there was everybody was there from out of town right yeah. so we were able to get that squeeze that show in number six uh what role models helped you become who you are uh definitely my dad 100 percent. just his perseverance building a hockey arena not having any experience being a project manager not having any experience being self-employed not having any experience i mean it just everything that my dad did impacted me probably in more ways than well than i ever knew at the time but now that i'm away from it i can go back and i can look at all the things that i learned from him and it wasn't like he was directly teaching me a lesson it was just done through osmosis right mm-hmm. like you're just you're, you're watching and figuring it out on the fly and how he solves problems. Exactly. And that's, that's where my ability, and I, to be honest with you, uh, I learned a lot of that when my dad passed away because I relied a lot on him. And I learned that the decisions, he was he, like, he was my rock. He was, yeah. he, he was the guy that if I had a problem, I'd go to him because he could figure anything out. Yeah. And then I learned that I, I don't have that anymore. That safety net is gone. Yeah. So I just learned to figure shit out. Um, what is your favorite type of racing? Uh, dirt track racing. And, uh, I'm, I'm still kind of attached to oval racing. Right. Snowmobiles. So if dirt track racing didn't exist, what racing type would you prefer? That would be snowmobile oval. Yeah. Snowmobile or anything where, um, yeah, ovals, but only because I can appreciate the, and I don't think anybody, unless you've actually raced a nice oval or close to somebody, I don't think you understand the the dedication and commitment it takes to drive one of those sleds into a corner at 100 miles an hour. Man. You know, with 10 inches of razor sharp carbide on the front and what, 244 or yeah. however, 300 picks in the back. I mean, they, they, and that's total commitment. That's just hanging off the edge of your sled man and just hoping that everything works well yeah. i know my brother runs in the enduro race here in kenora and uh we asked him if he'd like to run my brother-in-law's twin and he said nope single cylinders as fast as i'll go without a roll cage yeah he said i just yeah. don't feel safe <laughs> i said it's never a, imagine being the guy that's doing 100 miles an hour <laughs> It's a really, and if you, if you get out to a track like Bozic, sometimes it gets taken away because, you know, they're running classes and there's only three or four sleds in it. But, you know, when I grew up, I mean, when the Brian Sturgeons and the Mike and Steve Hools and the, like all those guys are running, I mean, there was 10, 12 guys in several heats mm-hmm. and that's when racing was, and it was, it was close and it was tight and it was, I, I ran the ovals there once and I thought, okay. <laughs> my brother summed it up best i said how, how do i look he says you know what fuck he said you were awesome he said if they actually stopped that race and turned it around the other way you were in first place <laughs> i went okay that's that, my oval career just ended then and that's it that's everything for uh for those questions thank you very much that was very insightful oh thank you that's good so yeah, no, like the, like you say, that commitment that it takes is like you're it, fully committed. It's, it's insane. I mean, all you got to do is, and I, I love looking at photographs coming yeah. from our guys with these telephoto lenses, and just take a look. Go back in the days that you know where Tim Bender's driving that four cylinder monster Yamaha, yeah. 
And I mean, he's just absolutely hanging off the edge. And the reason he's hanging off the edge of that thing, because if he's not hanging off the edge of that thing, that thing's going the other way. Right. And it's that racer sitting on that sled and that commitment. It's like doing a triple, yeah. you know, in snowcross. Right. Not many guys could do it. Morgan made it look easy. Yeah. And to watch those guys just do that so effortlessly, it's just, it's just, it's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely mind blowing. And perhaps because I'm older, I just don't have that in me anymore. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole different thing for sure. And it's one of those things too. It's easy for people to, and I, I think circle track racing is very similar to that. In, in any racing, for people who don't understand it, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they look at it, hey, you're driving a car or whatever. You're driving a snowmobile around. It's like, no, 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 no. This is a little bit heavier than that. <laughs> well, it's funny. We are, in, we are out in Velcro one year with WSA because we would run, they would have uh, ice bikes, um, ovals, ice ovals and snow cross. And then during the day we would run all three disciplines. Mm -hmm. So the snow cross guys and oval guys thought that the bike guys were crazy. The, the, the snow cross guys thought the ice oval guys were crazy and the ice oval guys just thought the snow cross guys were like off the rock. Neither one of them would ever jump on any equipment to just try it out. Because they're all like an like an ice ice oval sled. It's just such a purpose built piece of equipment. Yeah. Anybody can jump on a snow cross sled and take it for a drive. Yeah. Not everybody could jump on an ice oval sled and take it for a drive around the racetrack mm-hmm. without putting it into the wall. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that's interesting. So, so yeah, you you um, you decided to call it quits at the speedway. And, you know, you, you got this other opportunity. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's some of it, I guess, well, I guess the job isn't technically anything that you were doing before, right? You weren't, you, you're still doing equipment repair on the side. Yep. But, uh, you know, Zamboni driver and uh, all that other stuff. I mean, by the way, living every Canadian's dream is to be a Zamboni driver. <laughs> Drinking a cup of Tim Hortons exactly, coffee, right? Just living the dream. Yeah, I am the commercial. That's right. You're the guy. It, uh, the opportunity when it presented itself, it was a really good, I mean, if I was going to get back into the equipment repair business, it just made sense to be at a hockey rink and to be able to be as entrenched in the community as I became like in a year in St. Nostache mm-hmm. was for me is was phenomenal. I mean, geographically, I'm a little challenged because nobody wants to drive all this way to drop off equipment. So I've just, I'll just drive into town and I'd pick up. I've got somebody that came in from Norway house the other day, brought me some equipment. So I'm going to meet him at uh, Nixon, you know, yeah. like in heading because everybody yeah. knows where, where Headingley is. Um, I work a little bit out of the rink on McGilbury. So mm-hmm. that's become a, a pretty convenient drop-off spot for me. Um, probably hang my hat there, you know, during most of the, uh, most of the summer. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully I can get back into this thing where I can just do this a hundred percent of the time. I don't want to leave this rink. Yeah. Um, I'm really impressed with the people. It's country, right? Yeah. It's they're they're just they're my people here, yeah. and I fit in this community. Like it was a pretty seamless transition. Um, still lots to still lots to learn, but I'm very comfortable here. Actually, today's my uh, this is actually my last day. Like when we're done this, mm-hmm. we're walking out, walking up the door, and ice plants off. Until uh, until next year, which is ironic because I think it was about this time. I think when the Speedway sold, it was at about exactly the same time when I ended my term with uh, with Walt, and it was turned over to the Stutsky family. Right. I think it was at the end of uh, the end of March. Yep. So yeah, that's right. So within a couple of days. 
awesome to see you had such a great uh, great deal going here and yeah i'm really shifting gears a little bit but yeah i'm really really, uh, really happy yeah and in, like in a really good in a really good place right now really? plan on spending lots of time at the lake but i the price of fuel now it uh <laughs> i'm not sure how i'm gonna get all our luggage two large dogs into a honda civic to get to the cabin but <laughs> invest in a 10 speed <laughs> yeah if that's what it takes to get to the lake that's what i'm doing yeah well, that's awesome, man. I, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us here. This was... Uh, well, thank you. I knew if you yeah. called me, you must have been at the bottom of your barrels. We're <laughs> <laughs> adding names to the list last second. <laughs> no, no, we had really tried to do this before, and it just never worked out. Yeah, so Eric said, oh, yeah, it's good, because he said, we didn't have anybody else today. <laughs> like, right. well, that was last night. <laughs> we had a last night cancellation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's awesome. Thanks, guys. I no uh, really appreciate it. I, I like what you're doing you know, with this podcast for the racing community and whatnot. And hopefully everybody appreciates all the hard work and effort you guys put into it. Yeah, no, so far the response has been great and, uh, and we're having fun doing it. So yeah, we're definitely gonna have to keep it as a, an off season only thing because already right now it's getting pretty hectic. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at first we we're like, Oh, maybe we'll podcast a bit in the summer. We, I didn't talk to Anthony until I went to go race at his track. That's right. Which was <laughs> all, middle of August. Yeah. yeah, it just it's just the way it ends yeah. up working out for us anyway. So yeah. uh quick question yeah. for you before you let me go. Like were you guys sending me a check or are you just paying me cash for this? Um actually we're gonna do a hockey equipment repair in exchange <laughs> thing. So. I thought we were gonna put it on credit, but sure, I mean uh... <laughs> You should have said I'll just pay you in cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you'll have to uh you have to go check out like the wood speedway there and uh and collect. That's yeah. right. That's right. No, uh, no, it was great. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Blair. And hopefully, you have a great sp- spring. And maybe we'll see you at a speedway near somewhere sometime this summer. Your place, your place for sure. Oh, excellent! I appreciate yeah. that. It was great seeing. I never even. I. It's funny um, that I've been looking at pictures from that long weekend. And I remember seeing you when uh, when that the, uh, halfway through the race. Um, but I never saw you again until we, and we chatted later, but there's all these people I've seen in, in Val's photos later that I had no clue were even there. Yeah. I never yeah. even well, saw I say, them. I, I say, once I saw you throw your radio across the parking lot, I thought I said to Nita, you know what? I think I'll just leave Anthony alone. <laughs> he's, he's having a bit of a moment here. I did have a very, very, it was a great moment. I needed I actually picked up your radio and I handed it to somebody and said, you want to just go give this back to that guy over there? <laughs> it was good. Actually, you know what? It was great. The rest of the weekend went swimmingly after that. I think I just needed I that know. moment. So but that, that was a classic case of me just sitting there going that part. I don't miss. Cause I knew yeah. exactly what you were doing and nobody was listening to anything that you were trying to tell them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it worked out okay in the end, but it was interesting to see, you know, we had a lot of people there and there was people I hadn't seen in forever. It was, photos. it was an awesome, it was an awesome event. And, you know, just being so close to the cabin, like we'll, we'll be there more, uh, more this summer. Well, much appreciated. Hopefully we'll be able to chat instead of, uh, just see me, uh, throwing a radio. <laughs> I'll try and catch it before it hits the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you were pretty close to catching it. You just you happened to have I, your back turned at the time. I, I actually thought it was coming at me. <laughs> yeah, you're probably just used to that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you so much, each and every one of you, for listening to the podcast. We uh, really enjoy doing this. We really appreciate all of our guests. We'll catch you next time on Bench Racing Radio. Thanks for listening to Bench Racing Radio. Like and follow our social media handles. Facebook at Bench Racing Radio. Twitter at Bench Racing Rat One. Or Instagram at Bench Racing Radio.